Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and distinguished guests who have traveled far and near. Welcome to the 332nd regular meeting of the Civil War Roundtable of Chicago. And it's good to see so many of you on this most auspicious occasion. Before we go on into the program, I like, would like to make an announcement that the wine and champagne that we all enjoyed so much tonight was the compliments of our new Executive Vice President, Gerald, L. Gerald M. Edelstein. Well, it's June already, and another year of the Round Table of Chicago's history. We have just completed our 34th year. Not only are we the oldest Round Table in the country, but the leader in keeping the common cause of American heritage alive. But aside from that, there is a real closeness in this organization, a feeling of wanting to belong and to join in. And uh, I know there are quite a few members, including myself, who eagerly await each meeting. I would like to reflect a few moments, if I may, this has been a very exciting and very rewarding year for me to have served as your president. The experience I, I will never forget, it's sort of been like reading Playboy with your wife turning the pages. It all went too fast. It's a year that's been marked with sadness with the loss of two of our beloved members. A year of fun, comradeship, and accomplishments. We have begun an active program to save this beautiful GAR room, not only to have excellent meeting accommodations, but to build and create what we think will be one of the finest Civil War research libraries in the country. We have also joined with other roundtables across the country and in conjunction with the Civil War Times Illustrated magazine in a drive to save the dwindling battlefields of the Civil War from land speculators in their sort. Our membership and attendance has increased this year, but as they say, when you're number one, you have to try harder. And we must make the public aware of our organization to attract new members. Financially, we are solvent, as we have an excess in the Treasury. Not much, but we have an excess. Albert Einstein said, quote, Many times a day I realize how much my own life is built upon the labors of my fellow man and how earnestly I must exert myself in order to give in return as much as I have received. And this is exactly how I feel about many of my roundtable members, fellow members, who have given so much to help me this year. And so to Ray Jankovic, Bill Sullivan, Don Jensen, Don Sikorsky, Dick Clark, Bob Frank, Brooks Davis, Charlie Wesselhoff, Jerry Warshaw, Margaret April, and Ralph Newman. I give a big thanks. To Arnold Alexander, Warren Reeder, and Jerry Edelstein, who put on those great tours, I am extremely grateful. To Dr. Clausius, who gave us a better picture of Stephen A. Hurlbut than history has, and to our own Mr. Lincoln, Dick Blake, who gave us such a moving presentation of the old rail splitter, 
I am much obliged. But to two of the best friends a man was ever privileged to have, Ward Smeadle and Marshall Kolick, I shall always be in their debt. And if there was anything constructive or value to come out of this year, I thank them, for their help was never wanting. Finally, to my wife, Marilyn, companion and partner for over 25 years, whose help and encouragement was invaluable. As you probably all know, we have moved from the Chicago area, and we're down in Raintree County, Madison, Indiana, along the Ohio River. But we'll always be a part of this organization and, this, and to the wonderful people associated with it. As is the custom with our organization, each year we select a new slate of officers. And this year, the nominating committee has done their duty well. As Assistant Secretary, Bob Walters, Assistant Treasury, William Sullivan, Secretary, Terry Carr, Treasurer, Glenn Wickey, Vice President, Judge James L. Henry, Vice President, Dr. Francis R. Geigel, Senior Vice President, Gerald M. Edelstein, and President Ward C. Smeadle. Here I've, I've got to stop and make a comment. Now, I don't know if you've ever noticed, but you can always tell a lot about a man from his business card. And so with that, I would like to share with you Mr. Smeadle's card. Now, I'm not making this up. This is, this is Mr. Smeadle's card. And it says here, Ward C. Smeadle. Used cars, land, whiskey, manure, nails, fly swatters, racing forms, bongos, wars fought, revolutions started, assassinations plotted, governments run, uprising quelled, parties crashed, tigers tamed, bars empties, and orgies organized. Well, this will give you some idea of the man. But I ask you, how in the world, with all these jobs, can he assume the responsibilities of this roundtable? Seriously, Ward is one of the most dedicated men in this roundtable. His enthusiasm is only matched by his devotion to the common cause and interests we all share. It has been my extreme pleasure to get to know Ward quite well these past few years, and his wit and sincerity has made him a man I have been privileged to call a friend. And so to quote John Ruskin, the highest reward a man for a man's toil is not what he gets for it, but what he becomes by it. So Ward, right back, with those thoughts in mind and knowing the honor and reward you will receive by being president of this great organization, I turn the Civil War Roundtable of Chicago over to you. I was a little nervous when I attended a meeting here two years ago under similar circumstances except my wife created a crisis. She went into labor on the celebration of the 150th birthday of Ulysses S. Grant. And I didn't realize it that she was in labor that afternoon, but she wasn't going to waste $25 we'd paid out. 
and I noticed that when she started looking at my watch at the table, I was really shook up and we just made it in time and an hour after we left, Sarah Grant was born to our family. <laughs> I feel about as stable tonight as when she was looking at my watch two years ago. But I am proud to be here and I thank you for your confidence in me. On the road to success, you find people who know the, the value of getting advice. Andrew Carnegie, the steel magnate, said that his success was credited to hiring managers that knew more about the business than he did. And I'm sure he exaggerated. We can see this in the sporting world where a successful athlete has great coaches that are giving him advice, a great manager that's steering him as he goes along. I feel that we have a team this year that I'm proud to be associated with and that they are certainly going to give me some advice and I'm probably going to need it and I'm going to appreciate it. And with all humbleness, I say thank you to you and I'm proud to be here. Thank you. Now, Gordon, would you come up here, please? It's been a custom of this group that when a president goes out, that we don't use a rail or tarn feathers, regardless of how well he has acted or conducted himself. And Gordon, we feel you've had a very successful year, and we are proud of you. And I especially am honored that you are my friend. And I, my only regret is that Gordon has moved so far away that he can't be here during my term. And in remembrance of your efforts, we have a surprise for you. We'd like to award to you with our love. Where is it? Where's Marshall? Get up here. Let's give Marshall our usual greeting, fellas. He's very happy now. He's missed that all evening. The picture of Marshall Diane, I don't want it to. This is a Rogers replica that we were able to obtain, and it says, wounded to the last, what is it? I can't read it there. It said, wounded, wounded to, the to the rear. rear. One, One last shot. shot. One more shot. Congratulations, Gordy. We've appreciated a great year. I, I, I really don't know what to say. This is... Uh, more than I anticipated. Uh, maybe I ought to stay on for another year and see what Mitchell was doing. But I, I do thank you very, very much, and it was, a, it was indeed a pleasure for me to serve as president of this distinguished group. And I, I, thanks again. I'd like to ask Warren Reeder if he'll come up to the front, please. Ladies and gentlemen, we of Hoosierdom are desirous of giving a gift to our outgoing president, too. I address myself to his accomplishments. He's been the third Hoosier in the history of the Civil War Roundtable of Chicago to be president. 
and you know about his accomplishments. Marshall has written about them. You have lived with them. The men of the Calumet region of Northwest Indiana are probably best typified by a poem written by Carl Sandburg called The Mayor of Gary. And uh, this was written in 1919. And I just want to close with a, or rather read the close of the poem that he wrote. And he's talking about the steel mill men out there when he was standing at the corner of Fifth and Broadway. And he said, some had muscles, of had bundles of specialized muscles around their shoulder blades, hard as pig iron. And the muscles of their forearms were sheet metal. And they looked to me like men who had been somewhere. I think this is typical of our president. He has been somewhere. But alas, however, he is now defecting Northwest Indiana and going to Southeast Indiana to become a genuine Southern Indiana hillbilly. But, but we love him still, and we know that there will be invisible bonds of affection that will still hold him to us and to the members of the Civil War Roundtable of Chicago. Gordon, we of our Lake County Calumet region have gotten together and want to present you with this book here, The Life of George H. Thomas, History of the Army of the Cumberland that we know that you love so well. And I don't know why we selected or why the title ever came out this way, because you're in such a peaceful area now, but it's called Education in Violence. Gordon, with our compliments. say, Warren Reader is the one who first introduced me to this group several years ago, and ever since then, I eagerly waited each meeting, and uh, I just don't know what to say. It's beyond me, and I, I, I thank you again, and I, I thank all my Hoosier battalion boys out there so very, very much. Gordon said he was going to move down to Madison. I said, boy, you're going to miss this group. You're going to, how are you going to make friends? You're down there in 54 acres of farmland. I said, you're really a rube. And then when we, we go on these battlefield tours and we pass some old codger standing on a corner, it, Gordon's greeting was always, howdy. So he, he's got the twang for it, but I find out he's not going to be so lonesome. He's already on the Perry, Perryville, Parville Battlefield Commission or Board of Governors, I guess it is. And he's going to become affiliated with the Louisville Roundtable. Well, we wish you well. You're still a member here, but you're not the big ticket you used to be. <laughs> As my first official duty, I am very pleased to have a pleasant duty as, uh, to award some certificates tonight. The executive board has decided to award four life memberships to members whose continued outstanding service throughout the years has added greatly to this Civil War Roundtable. By the way, this is an award the Roundtable doesn't give out very often. Stan Carney here, please. Would you come up, Stan?
Stan has been one of our stalwart members for many years. In fact, I can't recall a meeting he hasn't attended. And he's been there on the coldest ones and on the hottest ones. He's a native of Newfoundland, received his education in England. He came to the United States when he was 19, and he found employment with the Erie Railroad, and he remained there for 47 years. When not absorbed in his love for the Civil War in this round table, he's a devout student of Charles Dickens and Napoleon. Congratulations, Stan. Don Russell. Don is another Hoosier with our group from Huntington, Indiana. He was graduated from Northwestern after service in the Army in World War I. He was launched into an active newspaper career, serving on many of the great Chicago newspapers. But it wasn't long until his hobby and interest began to show up in articles such as, quote, the lives and legend of Buffalo Bill. 103 fights and scrimmages, Custer's last, and many more. He has written over 3,000 book reviews and numerous articles in the Civil War Times and other publications. He is the editor of The Westerner and was the former editor of our newsletter, The Civil War Roundtable News, plus serving in many offices with our roundtable. It gives me great pleasure, Don, to present this to you. Thank you. Elmer Underwood. Another Hoosier from Fort Wayne, who also served in World War I, serving in the Air Corps, is Elmer Underwood. Elmer has found employment, also found employment on the railroad, in the railroad mail service, serving there for over 25 years. Elmer is one of those quiet people who has done more work for this round table accidentally than a lot of people do on purpose. He's been a member, he's been a Civil War buff for more years than he cares to remember and has been a member of this group for over 24 years. He thought he had retired in 1962, but Ralph Newman thought otherwise and made him the archivist of the Abraham Lincoln bookshop. Elmer, it's a real pleasure. We have one more award that will be made in absentia. Heine Bass, many of us know him from Enid, Oklahoma. Can't be here with us tonight, but we consider him one of us. Mr. Bass has been engaged with his own construction firm for over 25 years. He's one of the permanent fixtures on our battlefield tours, and he has been on everyone except this year when illness forced him to stay at home. He is also unable to be with us tonight, but he sends his thanks and gratitude and best wishes to all. And we will send the certificate also to Heine. Now I have another fine privilege in presenting our founder, who has been a real friend to me and to this round table, one who is responsible for round tables in this country. It's with great pleasure that I ask Ralph Newman to come up and take the podium. More and more, you know, I begin to feel more, 
more and more ancient as I keep re they referring to as our founder. I, sometimes I feel embarrassed to be up here in anything except a recumbent position. I want to assure you all that this evening and the weather today was not a deliberate plan on the part of the president of the board of directors of Chicago Public Library to persuade all Chicagoans that the $12 million that the city council has appropriated for renovating and air conditioning this building was needed very desperately. But any of you who are here tonight, I think will not object to the work that's now undergoing, underway, and perhaps in a year from now or a little more, you'll be able to meet here under more comfortable, but never under more friendly conditions. The Chicago City, before I go on with many of my duties, there's a couple people in the audience I'd like to introduce who have a very important connection with people who are in the program. First of all, I'd like to present the sister of Bruce Catton, Barbara Catton, who escorted him down here, I guess, to keep him out of trouble. Barbara. <laughs> and we seem to be in a rut because another Barbara, Barbara Long, brought Pete down here and uh, Barbara is one of the girls, I think, is the reason that the members don't, in, uh, don't invite women to all their meetings, because she knows so much more about the Civil War than most of us, she'd embarrass us, Barbara Long. For many years, the Civil War Roundtable, we never say the Civil War Roundtable of Chicago, the Civil War Roundtable, noticed how many of the other roundtables had created awards of various types and had begun to, every year or at, uh, at a regular occasion, make a presentation uh, to someone for a distinguished contribution to the Civil War. I've been lucky enough in some of their moments of desperation to have even been the recipients. And the Chicago Roundtable, our group, has long thought that someday we would create an award and a meaningful one. A combination of circumstances dictated that this be the time. One, this building is being renovated. The part of the building we are now in owes its origin to the Civil War because this entire area is a memorial to the Grand Army of the Republic and to the those events between 1861 and 1865 that made our organization come to life. As part of our renovation, where this will become a beautiful little theater as well as an auditorium, where the beautiful Tiffany Dome in the next room will be lighted, where the entire building will be air-conditioned, where the museum will have some new modern cases, and adjoining the museum and the room at the other end, that was used really as a kitchen tonight, will become a Civil War and American History Research Center. And the Civil War Roundtable itself has voted to establish a foundation and a fund to make that room possible. We are going to provide sufficient funds so that there'll be an endowment so all new Civil War books from now on will automatically come to that this library, where they'll be kept, not circulated, but available for serious students. And many of our members are, have already pledged to give both live books and 
financial contributions to make this a reality. So we thought that this would be the time to inaugurate a special award. And what better choice for a name of the award than to name it after two dear friends of this round table, both men who were honorary life members, both men who spoke to our round table and were most gracious to us, and both men who made great contributions to the history of the war we study and the history of this republic. Alan Nevins spoke to this round table on many occasions, traveled with us on some of our battlefield trips. He was, as many of us who were privileged to know him, the most gentle, gentle, and most generous, and most learned of human beings. And everyone here who has ever read a book about the Civil War, or read a good book, owes something to Alan. And some of us, Pete and Bruce, and Sam Vaughan and others, have a great personal debt to him. And then a great Southern gentleman, Douglas Southall Freeman, the biographer of Robert E. Lee, and of Lee's lieutenants, and of George Washington. I can remember the first Civil War Roundtable tour to Richmond. I knew Dr. Freeman. I think I perhaps at that time was the only member of the Roundtable who knew him. And I had written saying we were coming to Richmond and we hoped he could address us on the first evening we were there. And he very graciously consented. That made the, we knew the affair would be a success. But just before we departed, I received a telegram to me saying, Dear Ralph, I hope you and your friends can be my guests at tea at my home on Sunday afternoon before you leave Richmond for Chicago. And the great discussion on the plane was, when he said tea, did he mean tea? <laughs> when we got to his home that Sunday, in a beautiful place, and the weather was ideal, we were ushered in a large garden, and there were two tremendous tables. And one was nothing but mint juleps, and the other table you called your shots. And I recall our gracious host just walking among the help and just uttering this beautiful, small, short, but very meaningful speech. Keep these gentlemen liquored up. <laughs> we didn't know then that the speech he had delivered two nights before was to be his last speech in the Civil War, because in the following week, Dr. Freeman died suddenly. Something's, we had recorded his speech, and we had had a perfect recording of it, and later, with Mrs. Freeman's permission, we made, a, made some records which were made available to people who wanted to hear it. But to name the Civil War Roundtable Award, the Nevins Freeman Award, seemed to us the, the perfect name, and our executive committee, and indeed our entire membership, welcome the choice. It's my privilege to, to introduce a few people tonight who have known our first recipient of the Nevins Freeman Award. And they're men with whom I have been associated for many years. They're veterans of the refighting of many noble battles at places known to you, uh, such as Shiloh and Gettysburg and Richmond and Vicksburg and the Valley of Virginia. 
But also we have fought noble engagements in lesser-known places of conflict, such as the Hotel Custer in Galesburg, as Bruce remembers, and Ritazzi's Bar in New York that Sam and Pete and many of us know so well, and the Oak Room of the Plaza, and the club car of lamented memory of the 20th century and the Broadway Limited. But here we are to introduce someone who, who once I thought of as a young protege, who now joins all of us as a grizzled veteran of the Civil War, who reminded me last night when he and his wife, and Pat and I, and Betsy Davis had dinner together, that it was 30 years had passed since he first wandered into a certain bookshop, which then was on Michigan Avenue. Pete Long and I have seen a lot of history happen now in our own lifetimes. We have been engaged in many projects, some noble and some slightly nefarious. Uh, I feel if, if, if I've contributed nothing else at all, the fact that I was the, the marriage broker between Sam Vaughn, Bruce Catton, and Pete Long justifies to some small extent some of the other mischief I've been into in a lifetime that's never been dull. I could say a lot more, but to introduce Pete to this organization is absolutely preposterous. You've all known him, you've loved him, you've read his books, you've heard his speeches, you know as much about him as I care to tell you. Ladies and gentlemen, Pete Long. Thank you, Ralph. Needless to say, this is a memorable evening for my wife and myself. We've been gone only four years out to the high mountains and plains of Wyoming. But that seems like quite a while on one occasion, and then again it seems like yesterday as I look around at these faces. There are many old friends and associates abounding here tonight, and their memories, fond memories of a host of others. I don't have to comment on the appropriateness of this occasion, but I do feel you gentlemen who are the officials now of the Civil War Roundtable deserve the heartiest congratulation of Civil War students everywhere. And I'm very, very proud to have this opportunity to take a small part. And that's what bothered me tonight. Just what does one say about your recipient? Much has been said, and in the best sense, he has said it himself. Through his work, his career, and most important of all, perhaps, through his character and achievements as a true humanist. And I choose that word with some trepidation, because today I feel it has bandied about too much. But thank God, Mr. Catton is a true humanist and who gives honor to that work. And so it was a problem. Oh, I could relate our friendship of nearly a quarter of a century, I think, Bruce. I could recall some perhaps humorous incidents or stories. I could try to assess Catton, the Civil War historian. I could talk about Catton, the editor and newsman, the methodology of Catton. I have done some of these things in the past. 
but somehow none of them seem quite fitting for my part in this occasion. Now, I'm very much aware and very gratefully aware, as are the 330,000 people of the state of Wyoming, of the cotton papers at our splendid archives in the Laramie Basin at the University of Wyoming. Through Bruce's generosity, we now have in this truly national significant archive, high there in the Rockies, some 1,200 letters to and from uh, Bruce, and a good many other items, including copies of articles, lectures, speeches, clippings, and comments from the years gone by, written by Bruce. By the way, Dr. Gene Gressley, the very dynamic director of our archives, extends its congratulations to you, Bruce, his gratitude, and to the round table for this occasion. He and all of us at Wyoming are very proud of having the Catton Papers, of having the Elmer Underwood collection of Franklin Rooseveltiana, the wiki collection of tapes from this very Civil War round table, the Johnny Mize collection, Mr. Mize, a former member of this group of Civil War material and radio material, and of having had, of course, the very beneficial assistance of Ralph Newman in obtaining other material. We also have in the audience tonight our man in Washington, Josh Billings. Uh, we certainly appreciate what he's done for the university. Bruce, you may not know it, but your name attracts a lot of interest on our campus, and I'm sure campuses everywhere. The new generation is very much aware of you. There was a truly considerable groundswell of interest when we publicized in our local paper called the Laramie Boomerang, named after Bill Nye's jackass. It is our local paper. We publicized your collection. There was a truly a groundswell of interest. There was so much interest, in fact, that a very earnest young reporter from the student newspaper, The Branding Iron, wanted to do a special interview with me, as long as he couldn't get it Bruce. And he really did his research, too. He dug so deeply that he found a new volume by Mr. Catton, which, of course, was pronounced Caton by the student radio, naturally. And when the student reporter's article was printed and said Branding Iron, the title of this new prize-winning work by Mr. Catton, or Caton, was there in bold italics, a still at Appomattox. <laughs> That's true, now, isn't it, Bruce? It's right there in the paper. I sent it to him. A still at Appomattox. But, of course, the radio station pronounced that Apomatox. <laughs> well, Bruce's works do maintain a wide and enthusiastic readership. We have not forgotten, or we may have forgotten. In fact, I did not know of some of the things I found in the Catton Papers. And I think some of you tonight will hear of a different and a new and an inspirational Catton. I feel some of these deserve to be heard more than I can give you tonight. Utterances that show aspects of his gentle, profound introspection. So I think it is appropriate not to listen to me, but to hear a few words of Catton himself, some that he might have trouble recalling, words taken from the Catton papers at Wyoming and from my own personal files. There is <coughs> Bruce the Educator. Of course he's an educator. I hope all those who labor in the vineyards of history are educators, whether they are officially or formally on a campus or in a high school or where. Bruce, I'm sure you have forgotten that you wrote a letter many long years ago to one Wesley Hartley 
of La Granada, California. It apparently asked you about education. And you wrote, I think, a profound answer. I think, Bruce wrote, perhaps the most valuable experience at college was the fact that I became acquainted with good writing and learned, if only by exposure, what the English language can sound like if it is handled properly. Well, what an example to all of us your valuable college experience has been. I wish more students today and in the future could hear and read your words. And as I went through these papers, I thought once more the captain who is far more than a Civil War historian, far more than an historian, far more than a writer. So often from these words written in the 30s, 40s, and 50s came the thoughts of a man who thinks about things. The words of a philosopher of man on this earth, and particularly a philosopher of his own country. A philosopher who weaves the lights, shadows, and uncertainty of history into a fabric of life. Time permits only a few of these words. In Charleston, 1961, a century after those opening guns of the Civil War, he said, I hope we will never again talk about who won the Civil War. We all won. We all lost. This was our war, our victory, and our defeat. But it was a long step forward in what America would someday mean. Speaking of those who fought personally in the war and those who died during it, Duke University, 1957, we come back at the last to those young men. They were so careless, <clears throat> so irreverent, as unthinking and probably as much cursed with that rowdy spirit that we call juvenile delinquency as any young men of today. But they met the challenge not because they had thought about it very deeply, oh no, but simply because they were very good men. <clears throat> In Los Angeles, 1957, on Lincoln. In the last analysis, by going to politics, Lincoln was going to the people themselves. Among the, lead among the people, he had to look not only for followers, but for leaders. That was the great source of his strength, the fact that he had the discernment enough to make his search there, and the added fact that the American people themselves justified his faith. Rather new approach, isn't it, Don Lincoln? And a most interesting one. How many here tonight remember Catton at our meeting in Fort Wayne in 1957? I bet there's just a handful. I see five, six, seven, about eight. Well, do you remember, gentlemen, that were there, Bruce discussing the Civil War armies as armed mobs? And his conclusion, we are all an armed mob, answerable to no traditions and to no old world formulas, going forward to shape the future in accord with the dream which we have dreamed. And as we go, as we look back on what we have done, and try to essay the cost and the meaning of it all. We have nothing much to go on except the words which a poet a century ago left to us. Someday man will awaken from his long sleep and will find that his dream remains and only the sleep 
is God. I remember that night so very, very well. And Catton is an optimistic dreamer, a hoper. He, dream, he dreams and hopes for many things, and he has faith, very strong faith. Maybe more, Bruce, than I have. At the site of the lost colony on Roanoke Island in 1958, he said, we build much of the time on what has been lost. We face crisis and disaster generation after generation. Sometimes we fortunately win, sometimes we bravely lose, but always we do go on. In the last analysis, the answer is triumph, not tragedy. At the Loomis School in Windsor, Connecticut in 1956, it is the noble dreams of men which live the longest. Note that, please. It is the noble dreams of men which live the longest. Shakespeare, Bruce says, was a cynic when he remarked that the evil that men do lives after them. The evil to Catton is of short life. It is the good that survives. It survives in brick and in stone and in human institutions that go on working long, long after the men who founded them have been gathered to their fathers. It survives in the hearts of men who re-examine their debt to the past. Our debt grows out of ideas and dreams, which, when they are good, do not die. Also in 1956, Bruce, you said to Union College, New York, speaking of the unique quality that runs through our great American experience, out of this, we Americans have derived a strong belief in our own destiny. More than any other people, except perhaps the desert-wandering children of Israel, we have a sense of mission. We have always had the feeling that we are going toward something. Maybe, Bruce, you were expect, uh, saying something that's very appropriate to this room and to this organization. And then, your first talk to the Oberlin alumni in 1956 on human liberty. Human liberty is something that occasionally has to be fought for and that always has to be worked at. We believe in something, in the perfectibility of the human spirit, if in nothing else, in the strange theory that there are values beyond values in human life alone to the National Education Association in 57. Our inborn faith must come to our rescue. Man is still God's instrument on earth. His dreams are still things that will survive him and become real. Mr. Catton showed his encompassing historical realism and optimism when he spoke to the Harvard ROTC in 57 his words lasting longer than the Harvard ROTC has lasted. These words untainted with cynicism. And these were some of his words. 1957 now, Mark you. The world today is indeed in a very bad situation. But that is only another way of saying that it is going on in its normal course. It has always been in a bad situation until the millennium arrives, an event which seems somewhat remote, 
it presumably always will be. And Mr. Cotton concludes, that simply means that human life is dynamic rather than static. It is an unending development, a constant move through dire perils toward the unpredictable. The pattern by which the world moves ends right in front of our own feet. But perhaps the passage that I would like to leave with you most of all, my dear friends, that set me to thinking most was brought to me by a graduate student. Bless them, they're always doing this. He brought me a Xerox copy of a column he accidentally found in the Cheyenne, Wyoming State Leader of January 1st, 1938. When Bruce was with the NEA and writing features and columns. Basically, this was a column in 1938 on the first day of that year on New Year's resolutions. And I'd be out of place if I did more than just quote from it. We are pretty hopelessly earthbound, but we still live by the stars. We are on a puzzling sort of voyage. NEA and writing features and copies. Basically, this was a column in 1938 on the first day of that year on New Year's resolutions. And I'd be out of place if I did more than just quote from it. We are pretty hopelessly earthbound, but we still live by the stars. We are on a puzzling sort of voyage, and much of the time our destined landfall seems to be in a good deal of doubt. And our only recourse then is the traditional recourse of the mariner to look at the stars, remind ourselves of our charted course, and to be guided accordingly. It is our unfailing reminder that in spite of the doubt and discouragement of the daily round, we were somehow, somehow born of something deathless and put on this earth to serve a purpose that is greater than ourselves. If we ever lose touch completely with that fact, we are lost indeed. My dear friends and Bruce, Bruce Catton is not lost. Listen to Pete, I thought of another thing. When I first met Pete, he was working for the AP, and he'd have to get to work very early in the morning to prepare the radio news. And the only way he could attend a Civil War roundtable meeting and make the deadline was by coming back from the meeting and sleeping in the bookshop so that he could get to work on time. And he was our first night watchman long before Betsy and Brooks Davis became night watchmen in residence. You know, I'm a bookseller, occasionally an author, and very seldom is it that booksellers or authors have anything nice to say about publishers. And here we are in a public library, and I'm president of the board of a public library. And by the way, I'd like, we, I've overlooked one thing. I should present, and I will now, Dr. Alex Ladenson, the chief librarian of this institution.
But there are times when Alex and his colleagues and I and my colleagues have things to say about publishers that are not exactly laudatory. But I have a particular affection for the publisher I'm about to introduce. One, he has had a long career in the book business, and he's been on all sides of the counter. He's been a publisher salesman, an editor, and now he is not the president of Doubleday, but the publisher. I remember many years ago, Carl Sandburg making a speech and talking about the great powers on earth. They change from time to time. He said, the great powers on this earth, the Catholic Church, Sears Roebuck and Company, General Motors, and the British Empire. Today, I'd have to strike the British Empire and substitute Double A and Company. Sam Vaughan has worked with Bruce Catton for a long, long time. He was one of the people who had the good judgment to realize in the writings about the Civil War by this fellow Catton something extraordinary. I remember my delight in receiving and reading, and just not even finishing, but reading part of Mr. Lincoln's army and calling Pete Long and saying something very unusual has happened to me. And I remember also writing and calling Bruce Catton and asking him if he would come and meet with the Civil War Roundtable and speak at Gettysburg. And coming back that first evening there and there sitting in the lobby, not knowing anyone, was some fellow, looked a little lonesome, and I figured that might be Bruce Catton that it was. He had taken the bus up from Washington to make a speech to us. What a great beginning it was for a wonderful friendship and love affair between Bruce and I, the love, the round table and Bruce. And Double A has done nobly by Bruce Catton. I feel very warm toward Sam because he also was my editor and publisher at Double Day. He has revived a distinguished title. He is not the president of Doubleday, he's the publisher. The title held by one of the great men in the publishing world. I think it was Frank Nelson Doubleday who was regarded as the publisher of Doubleday. The ladies and gentlemen, the paraphrase Carol Sandburg, and replacing Great Britain, Sam Vaughan, Doubleday and Company, publisher of Bruce Patton. Sorry, I don't have an English accent. The danger in uh, knowing a man fairly well is that you will end up thinking you know him. So in speaking tonight of Bruce Catton, I don't think that Pete or Ralph or I uh, want to mislead you and to suggest that we really know him um, to the limit. I suppose I'm guided and warned by one of the insights you gain in reading a book by Mr. Catton which is that the individual human being may be basically unknowable, but is very much worth trying to know. The biographical elements of his life are well established. He was born in Benzonia, Michigan, though there is a small civil war that rages between Benzonia and Petoskey to claim him. 
he grew up in a time and, and a place that is no more. That is, in turn of the century, middle America. Of course, Upper Michigan is still there, uh, but the old trees are gone. The big trees that were once, as he has shown, its shelter, its sustenance, and its reason for being. In his Civil War histories, Mr. Catton has always found one or more scenes which are particularly vivid and memorable, usually visual. In his one book of personal history, Waiting for the Morning Train, he found a marvelous scene, a sound really, which is, which is something you hear in the memory. One by one, he wrote, all up and down the state, as the supply of timber ran out, lumber towns became familiar with the noise of the last whistle, which the sawmill people sounded when they were about to go out of business. A mill that had consumed all the logs it could get and was to be dismantled and moved away or sold for scrap would let the final head of steam in its boilers exhaust itself through the whistle. When the buzz saws and the edgers and the jolting gang saws and the clattering conveyors at last fell idle for good, the boss would pull the whistle cord, tie it down, and let the steam go up to join the clouds. And that passage goes on, but it's one that stays in the mind. Mr. Catton writes in that book also of his days at Benzoni Academy. You all know the Benzoni Academy, one of those hundreds of small, vaguely religious educational institutions, a few of which turned out to be Harvard or Oberlin, while others remained, for a time at least, Benzoni Academies. You will recall the roster of Benzonia's famous graduates. There is Bruce Catton, and, uh, well, there's Bruce Catton. The academy was run by his father, uh, a Middle Western man who was really something of an intellectual, although nobody used dirty words like that in those days. A man who ran and tried to build this small school into something better, not necessarily bigger. The book is uh, one of those works of autobiography which is uh, intensely personal, very particular, and therefore, for some reason I don't understand, cosmic, universal. It begins with the glacier, with an awareness that the glacier was once there over this part of the earth, and it withdrawn. The hallmark of Catton's writing is that he always searches for those moments when things have changed and will never be the same again. And in this search, he displays an amazing range, and there are sides of Bruce Catton revealed in this little book, Waiting for the Morning Train, that even the most discerning readers of his Civil War histories might not have seen. His sense of man against machine, or machine against man, his sense of man against the landscape, his sense of humor. Never have they been shown more fully, I think. And by this time, he is out from behind his cover story, which was the Civil War. This is his own story, and as with all great autobiography, you may find yourself in it. What started him on the Civil War? Of course, there are younger people who think he was in it, and there are other publishers who think he won it. As a boy, he says, he was intrigued by certain old men in Benzonia who had, were drowsing away the greater part of their lives in the backwoods, men who had been somewhere and seen something. He began to wonder where they had been and what they had seen. And later in his life, he discovered the regimental histories, those grand and awful tomes which helped put him in touch with the foot soldier and some of those men. These two episodes, plus his own uh, service in the Navy during World War I, in government during World War II, and in journalism as a Washington correspondent, provide background, all of which is pertinent to his writing, and none of which can fully explain his art. 
Nor does his career tell us why, from his first Civil War book on, he showed increasingly that rare quality, which, said Alan Nevins, his fellow historians admire above all others, his imagination. His first book, or Civil War book, I believe was begun as a novel. Taking a look at the early manuscript, he set it aside, in some disgust, probably with some expletives deleted. Ever since, however, his writings have shown the uh, vision and the imaginings of a novelist, the storyteller's strong sense of narrative, the historian's respect for fact, and the poet's love of language. No point in recounting all the books, not to this knowledgeable audience, but it is worth remarking again that he did his first book when he was in his 50s, and as he faces a youthful 75, he is still at work. One of the standard questions about Bruce, and one of those that, that uh, Ralph has asked me to address myself to is, how does he get it all done, and what is it like to work with him? I was assigned to be his editor after the first glory had touched his shoulders. Uh, his first editor, editor at Doubleday was a man named Walter Bradbury. But several editors were concerned with his work, and when I first got the assignment, I read the file, and I came across a memorandum which gave me something of a thrill, if I may use that word. It was an exchange in which Walter Bradbury wrote to Ken McCormick, the editor-in-chief, and Lee Barker, the executive editor, and he said, uh, in essence, he said, this man, Catton, has written a Civil War book, as you know, which sold about 2,200 copies. Uh, he wrote a second one, which we published not long ago, and that sold a little bit better, but not all that much better. And now he wants to write a third one. What do you think? Well, fortunately, the three men agreed that they should encourage him to do one more, get it out of his system. And uh, in fact, Lee Barker said, I think we should have him do it because he's going to be one of the great ones. Now, when I was assigned to be his editor, Mr. McCormick, the editor-in-chief, said, never write on an author's manuscript until you and he know each other pretty well. It's really very sensitive. It's, really, it's something like writing on his skin. Well, I thought this was a little elaborate, but I paid attention. So when I received the first Cat manuscript, uh, I sat down to read it. There were a few things that I wanted to talk over with him, so I made tiny pencil check marks on the manuscript, and then I wrote what I had to say on a tablet. I went over to his office at American Heritage, um, and we sat down to talk. Here was this established author and a sort of boot editor, and he was very kind to me, very respectful of what I had to say, and uh, we got along pretty well. Sometimes, if I suggested that a sentence was in trouble, he would um, take a pencil and draw a line through it. That's the cat and cure for bad sentences, is get rid of them. But I noticed before he did that, he always took an eraser and took away that tiny little check mark I put on the margin of the manuscript. He likes to lunch, as Ralph has suggested, in the oak room of the Plaza Hotel. There, in that high-ceiling room with its excellent straightforward food and generous tables and seasoned dark wood, Mr. Catton leans forward on his elbows, occasionally sips a glass slowly, and pretends to be just a simple country boy, or at least one who has developed a taste for simple luxury. One of my pleasurable duties is to deliver to him at those lunches uh, his reviews and his royalty checks. Unlike authors who insist that they never pay attention to reviews, he reads them carefully, immediately. Um, he nods a little, he purses his lips slightly, always a little surprised at praise, and never unmindful of the infrequent criticisms. As for the royalties, he says always, thank God for the Army of the Potomac. <laughs> thank God for Bruce Catton. It is easy enough for editors and publishers to think highly of best-selling authors. 
that only a few authors could possibly command the respect and affection that he has in our house. Many popular or distinguished writers uh, receive, in the phrase of the post office, special handling. But Catton, who is both distinguished and popular, never earns much special handling and never asks for any. A Catton manuscript is a thing of beauty. It arrives on time, usually. It is a joy to read. It is always full of surprises, and they are never unpleasant surprises. He is an author who can instruct most editors. His, um, as I've already said, his favorite method of revising is to cross out the bad sentences, the few that creep through. Surprising, he says, how often that fixes them. But then Mr. Catton is an editor himself. And as a veteran newspaper man, rewrite is not for him the slow suicide it is for most authors. When he is at work, his wastebasket fills rapidly. He may produce 10 or 12 crumpled sheets to arrive at a single paragraph or a sentence. In fact, one of my vagrant thoughts is that I could get better books out of his wastebasket than I get out of the ordinary submissions in the course of the year. He does not use carbon paper, which causes him nightmares and drives me crazy. He favors the soft, cheap paper of newspaper men, which he thinks is yellow, but I think is gold. One of the privileges of knowing him some is being able to answer the recurring questions like, how does he get so much done? And as far as I can figure out, it's because he gets up early in the morning. In Manhattan, he leaves the warm and comfortably appointed apartment he shares with his sister Barbara. He gets himself to the office. He seats himself at a typewriter which rests on a solid walnut stand. And by the time the rest of the American Heritage staff arrives, he has produced a neat pile of beautifully readable history. From then on during the day, he's an editor. At lunch, he may talk shop, or he may sit alone pensively in the Algonquin dining room. And that is not a waste of time. Somehow I suspect that walking, talking, traveling, Mr. Catton is one way or another always writing. At the end of the day, he reads, writes, revises. In the days of the centennial history, he would go through the bulky and immaculate and invaluable notes supplied by Pete Long. Sometimes he uh, spends weekends the same way, except that there's no trip to the office. He does have a darker side, has some interest in baseball, uh, some in hockey, and he loves to drive fast cars at illegal speeds. He gets so much done, in short, because he works, because he's a pro, uh, but he doesn't work every minute. At the conclusion of a long, hard, sustained siege of work, I know that in the past he has, he's done some, uh, refreshed himself in ways that are not quite typical. After finishing this hallowed ground, Mr. Catton and his wife, Cherry, took a, a ship to England uh, and got on the ship and turned around and came home. When he finished the last words of Never Call Retreat, they boarded a train for California, visited briefly with his other sister, spent a few days at a mission inn, and came home. Partly, he uses trains and ships because he feels the same love for airplanes he does for bigotry, which is to say none whatever. The style of the man is like his writing. He is, as you know, tall, dresses well but unostentatiously. His speech is colloquial, deceptively casual and amused, not infrequently eloquent, and there is always about him an immense reserve of dignity. He makes thinking and sensing and writing look easy. Still, slight, still and always slightly surprised by his own success and humbled by it, he explains it by saying that, quote, every once in a while God puts his hand on your shoulder and says, come along, chum. Though he can bring poetry and romance to the subject, Mr. Catton keeps reminding us that war is the least romantic of man's activities, and that a good reason for continuing exploration of the Civil War 
is to help us get on with that war's unfinished business. Thank you. It was Alan Nevins who suggested Bruce Catton to be editor of American Heritage. Another one of the great noble things that Alan did. One of the life members of this round table and a dear friend of many of us and a particularly close friend of Bruce and Pete and Sam and mine is Carl Haverlin. Uh, Carl had made a reservation to be here tonight, but unfortunately Mrs. Haverlin became very ill and he couldn't. So he sent this message and asked me to read it and to make with it a presentation and also a uh, footnote. Almost a quarter of a century ago, in November 1950, Ralph Newman literally forced New York to form a Civil War roundtable. The first speaker that we sought for our first meeting, January 1951, was Bruce Catton. I had been a fan of his previous Warlords of Washington and had heard of his forthcoming book, Mr. Lincoln's Army, through a league of Doubleday. However, Mr. Catton's work pressure and an innate sense of modesty delayed his acceptance of our invitation until May 9th of that year. It is interesting to note that preceding him as a speaker was Douglas Southall Freeman in February and that he was followed in November by Alan Nevins. Only a serious illness in my family prevents my attending Bruce Catton in my usual capacity as aide-de-camp on this historic, moist battlefield, Carl Haverlin. And Carl asked that I present to you, Bruce, this little item and asked that I announce on behalf of Sam, now, and he's paraphrasing, guess who, now that I know the brand of liquor my best author drinks, I shall send a gallon to all of my authors, President Sam Vaughn. This, of course, Bruce's beef eaters. And now, it gives me great pleasure, on behalf of the Civil War Roundtable, to present the first Nevins Freeman Award. I happen to have a personal antipathy to things like plaques that you hang on walls because there aren't enough walls on to house them and they're pretty ugly. And I thought, and fortunately my colleagues, and particularly Marshall Krolick, who with me constituted the committee for this award, thought it ought to be something that Bruce might look at fondly and uh, remind him of the war and of us and this handsome cannon has on it a brass plate reading the Civil War Roundtable Nevins Freeman Award for, quote, distinguished service, unquote, in the American conflict of 1861-1865. You notice how we got around all controversy there. Bruce Catton, Jan June 14, 1974, Chicago, Illinois. Bruce. It's even workable. 
but we thought you'd rather have this than yeah. something else. Yeah. And, and with your permission, I'm going to pass it around. Yeah. Yeah. You look at it. Yeah. Yeah. The audience is yours. speech. <laughs> I don't quite know why I did come here, as a matter of fact, except that I love all of you, and uh, it's been extremely nice. I am indebted to the Civil War Roundtable in two ways. In the first way, in the first place, you people helped to create the climate in which books on the Civil War could be published and sold. I remember the first Civil War book I wrote was rejected by two eminent publishers on the ground that they could not sell Civil War books. Fortunately, I found a third one, Mr. Vaughn is the representative, that was willing to take a chance. Civil War books did begin to be sold, and I think a great deal of the blame for this is due to the round table. Uh, there was an audience here which built itself up slowly but steadily, and it was greatly to the benefit of all of us who wanted to write. But much more than that, those of us who were trying to write about the Civil War became aware very soon that there were some very alert, knowledgeable people out here. An audience that would read every word we did and be extremely critical if those words were not good. We had to live up to something. Uh, whatever the newspaper reviewers might say, and 25 years ago, there were only two or three newspaper reviewers in the country who had even heard of the Civil War. But beyond them, we knew that what we wrote was going to be examined by some lynx-eyed people in Chicago who knew probably more about it than we did would be very critical, and, you know, if we were going to write this, we'd better be good. Now, there is nothing that can happen to a writer better than that. To know that there is a highly critical, knowledgeable audience waiting for him. He has elected himself as an authority on this subject. He'd better be an authority. He'd better know what he's talking about, he had better be able to write about it well. Because out in Chicago, there are people who will cut his throat if he doesn't. Now that is, that is good for a man who's trying to write. That's extremely good. It's what he needs. And uh, I am grateful to all of you for that. Now I began my brief unrehearsed remarks 
with a quotation from a famous man, Mark Antony. I would like to close them with a quotation from another man, equally famous, although in a different milieu, uh, Mr. Yogi Berra. Yogi Berra was a baseball player. And about 10, 15 years ago, they had a night for Yogi Berra at Yankee Stadium. And a great many people were there, and uh, everybody gathered around home plate with the spotlights on them and the things like this. And people made speeches telling Yogi what a great man he was, and they gave him gifts, and it was quite an evening. And at last, it was time for Yogi to make a response. Well, Yogi was a very deft, accomplished man with a glove in his hand or a bat in both hands. But as a master of the English language, he was uh, not too good. But he steeled himself, and he got up to the microphone, and finally gave birth to this deathless sentence. I want to thank all of you fans for making this night necessary. <laughs> well, that is the way I feel. Thank all of you for making this night necessary. I love you all. Bruce, thank you for coming. We all thank you for your writing genius, which has contributed so much to making the round table endure. And thank you all for coming here tonight to pay tribute to our fellow member and dear friend. And Pete and Sam, we are all grateful to you for joining us. Good night. Thank you.